My name is Jesse. Uh, my wife and I host a community group here in Phoenix Bible Church. Um, the uh, passage we're going to read this morning is Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. Uh, go ahead and read along with me if you've got your Bibles. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to meet, to sit together, to worship you, and to learn about you. Lord, I pray that you would help us make the most of this time, that you would open up our hearts, open up our ears so that we could hear your word and that it would penetrate our hearts and change us. I pray that you would be with Pastor Tim, give him the words to say that would just strike through our hearts and make us new people. Lord, I also want to just ask you to remind us to uh, mourn with those who are mourning this morning, um, that we would just be there with them, and for those who are mourning here, that we would just, uh, we would love them and uh, be with them in this time. Thank you so much again for this time. We ask these things in the name of your son. Amen. And as I would hear these analogies, uh, swimming in the ocean and, and that life's really hard and we have to navigate around sin, we have to navigate around other, other religions, we have to navigate around physical pain and emotional pain and, and even spiritual pain. And you're swimming through the ocean, you're dodging those things and those waters and the storm is hitting and it's really difficult and God throws out a life vest. He throws out this life vest and if you work hard enough, you're able to maneuver and grab that life vest and put it on and snap it in and that God saves you. Those analogies are incomplete. That you're not swimming, you're not drowning. That scripture teaches us, this passage teaches us that you are dead at the bottom of the ocean. You are dead, lifeless, and cold at the bottom of the ocean. And that God, rich in his mercy and his love and his immeasurable grace, he reaches down to the depths that he picks up your dead body, that he lifts you up and he breathes life into your lifeless body. That's what we see in this text. 
That's what we see in scripture. If you're a Christian, that's what you have experienced. excited to dive into the book of Ephesians with you. We're going to be in this book for the next 13 weeks. It'll take us right up to our Christmas series, and so we're going to get a lot. It's a rich, rich book, six chapters, but it, it is so, so rich. So I hope you join us on Sundays, and I hope you follow along with us. We're going to have a few things for you to do that. Uh, one is a study guide that we'll make available to you guys. Uh, another is some video content, that and other things that just help supplement what we're doing on Sundays, and as well as our community groups. We're going to tell you more about those guys later in the service, but those meet every week, and they work out practically everything we talk about today. And so we want you to follow along with us as we dive into this great book. And I know some of you have maybe read Ephesians before. Some of you maybe are brand new to the Bible, brand new to church. And, and I think no matter who you are, as we look at this book, as we spend these next 13 weeks together, that by the end of it, that God would stir up within you this overwhelming sense of joy and awe and praise. This joy and awe and praise for, for what he has done. That, that's how Paul starts this Letter, and we're going to dive right into it. Look at the text with me. Uh, it's a short intro if you look at some of the other epistles, some of the other letters that the Apostle Paul wrote. Uh, and he says this He says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. That means he's a messenger from God. And so as we read this, these next three, 13 weeks, this isn't man's opinion, uh, this is God's word. He says he's writing to the saints in Ephesus. Paul was in Ephesus. Uh, you can read about that in Acts chapter 19. He was there for the beginnings of that church. But as scholars look at this, what's interesting is that it's different from Paul's other letters. That usually, if you look at Paul's other letters, he talks to a specific controversy. He talks to a specific issue. He addresses that head on. Ephesians isn't really like that. And so most scholars believe that it was more of a circular letter, that Ephesians would have read it, but other churches would have read it, that it was the summation of the Christian faith. Some scholars called it the queen of the epistles. And we get to experience the beauty of that this morning. So he gives us this brief intro, then he jumps right into this overwhelming sense of praise. Look at verse three with me. Verse three, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so Paul begins this summation of the Christian faith with praise. He says, blessed be God. And then these next 14 verses, he, he goes on to talk about all the ways we've been blessed by God in Christ. And so Paul is, is so excited about this that he doesn't even have time for a period. That in verses 3 through 14 in the original language, they're all one sentence. And I want you to think about this as we go through all these blessings, that, that Paul was an articulate man. Paul knew his grammar, right? He wrote half of the New Testament. He knew his grammar, but in this situation, he flunks grammar class because he's so excited about what Jesus has done. He's so excited about the summation of the Christian faith that he doesn't even have time for a breath. You know, I was thinking about it as I was preparing. My oldest daughter, one of her first Christmases, where she was actually able to take everything in and she knew what gifts were and she responded accordingly, you know those times? She was about two years old and, and we got her this Elmo DVD. 
And none of our other kids have been like this, but she loved Elmo. And it's primarily because she had pneumonia a lot when she was little, and we had to give her breathing treatments, and she hated those. But she loved Elmo, and so that helped calm her down. And so her first Christmas that she actually is aware of things, what's going on, we get her this Elmo DVD, and she loves Elmo. And listen, she went nuts. I mean, literally, I can imagine the scene in our living room where she opens up this Elmo DVD. Her body literally spasmed and convulsed. She threw the DVD across the room, and she began running around the room screaming for about 30 seconds. It was an explosion of praise. She didn't know what to do with herself. Listen, as we look at verses 3 through 14, as we open up the book of Ephesians, that's how Paul writes this letter. That's how we should read this letter, that it's this explosion of praise for what Jesus has done, that we are blessed, and we are blessed in Christ. That phrase, in Christ, or in him, or in the beloved, occurs 11 times in these 14 verses. Jesus is mentioned 15 times in these 14 verses. That as Paul begins this summation of the Christian faith, there's nothing about what you have done. There's nothing about what you have failed to do. And so I don't know if this is your first time here. I don't know if you're newer to Jesus or Christianity. But if you've thought of Christianity as a religion... If you've thought of Christianity as primarily about what I do to gain approval with God, you need to know that's, that couldn't be further from the truth. That as Paul gets into this summation of the Christian faith, as we look at the foundation, the core of our faith, that before you ever get to what you do, it's about what God has done for you in Christ. And that's how Paul starts this. It's in Christ that we're blessed in Christ, and we should be excited about that. Listen, if you're looking at your neighbor, if you're feeling like this, if you're comfortable right now as we talk about this, you need to give your neighbor a little shake. Don't do that. That may be awkward if you don't know each other, but, but you do need to feel some praise well up within you, right? Shake a leg, raise a hand, say amen. You, you need to sense some praise because that's what Paul is sensing. It's an explosion of praise. Blessed be God. For he has blessed us in Christ. How has he blessed us? Look at verse four with me. Verse four, it says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That we are blessed because God chose us. That God doesn't ask you to work your way to him. That no, he works his way to you. That he initiates, that he draws and that he chooses us before the foundation of the world, that he was planning to come get you from the very beginning. And he doesn't just save you. Look at the text. He sanctifies you, that we should be holy and blameless. And so as I know, as we talk about this, for some of you, being chosen, that doesn't bring praise, it brings problems. It doesn't bring comfort, it brings confusion. And you began to start thinking, well, well, who does God choose? On what basis does God choose? How does God choose? How does this all work? And sometimes you get confused instead of being comforted. Sometimes you see problems instead of praise. But as we look at this explosion of praise, Paul is trying to enlighten you of God's glorious grace that you are chosen. And there's so much we could say about this. We could do a whole sermon series on this. 
we're not going to do that. Uh, but I do want to hit the two most common questions that I hear, two questions, to be honest with you, that I've had in my life um, that I've wrestled with, I imagine you've wrestled with as well. The first question is this, how does God choose us? Well, Paul tells us, right? He tells us right up front. He says he chose us in him. Listen, he chose you in him, not you. And I think part of the reason we struggle with this is because this is so counter to our culture, right? That in our culture, everything we receive is based on who? Us, right? You think about the promotion you get in your job. That's based on if you can work hard enough. You think about the scholarship that you get at school, that's based on if you are smart enough. You think about your friendships and relationships, that's based on if you are nice enough and if you don't smell bad, right? Everything's based on you and our culture and and Paul opens up this letter and he says, you're chosen but it's not your work, it's his worth. That you're chosen and it's based nothing on you, it's based on him. And listen, even as I say that, some of you are like, well, come on. I mean, what, what about those times I served at the Salvation Army? I mean, what about those good works I did for my friend? I mean, what about now, Tim? I'm here, aren't I? I mean, I got dressed. I put on nice clothes. I took a shower. I mean, doesn't that count for something? And Paul is saying it's not about your works, that this is so countercultural to what we experience, that God is, is glorious. Do you see that? That God is glorious. His grace is so glorious that it's not about your work. From the very beginning, it's about his worth. That you can rest in that. You can celebrate that with the Apostle Paul in this passage. The second question I think a lot of us struggle with is, who does God choose? And the first thing I would say to that is we don't know, right? We don't know who God chooses, but we do know his character, and that's what we should focus on. Romans 2 tells us God shows no partiality. Second Peter tells us God desires for all men to be saved. John 3 tells us God so loved the world that he gave up his own son. You see, I think another reason why we have struggles with this, why we have issues with God choosing, is because when we think about that, we think of God as this cruel team captain who's only picking the best and the brightest, right? Maybe you've never said it that way, but we kind of think of it like that. But you need to know, and as you think about this, uh, the book of Romans says that no one seeks God, that we all go our own way, that we look at the creator and sustainer of the universe who offers us life, and we dismiss that. And we ignore that and we rebel against that and we say, no, I'm going to go my own way. And instead of running towards life and him, we run towards death and destruction. And that in that moment, listen, this is really important. In that moment, that God is so loving, God is so good, God is so glorious that he draws you close, that he initiates. And listen, he doesn't pick the best and brightest. No, he gives the best and brightest. He gives his perfect son, Jesus Christ, to live, to die, to resurrect on your behalf, to save you out of death and give you new life in him. That that's the God who chooses you. That he's not a cruel team captain. He is a generous father. 
He is a God who is of glorious grace, that he is drawing you to himself. In spite of you, he's coming to get you. Do you see that? That it is glorious, glorious grace. The last thing I would say about this is that there is a tension, right? There's a tension. There's a tension between divine sovereignty and man's responsibility. And that's not a new tension. Over centuries, theologians, churches, Christians have struggled with that tension. One of those was Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher, theologian. He said this about this tension between sovereignty and responsibility. He said there are two lines that so nearly parallel that the human mind which pursues them farthest will never discover that they do converge, but that they converge and meet somewhere in eternity. Can you picture that? These seem like two parallel lines that go on forever, but what Spurgeon is saying is that eventually they do intersect. We see it unapologetically throughout the Bible. We see God is sovereign, God does come for you, God does guide everything, but we have decisions to make. We have responsibilities. Even later in this passage, Paul says that you are sealed with the Holy Spirit if you will hear and believe. That's your responsibility. Those are actions on your part. We see that throughout Scripture. It's this tension that we wrestle with that seems like parallel lines, but Spurgeon is saying at some point in eternity, they do converge. That God is infinite and we are finite, and while we may not understand that now, we can rest in his character. As we talk about God choosing us, you don't need to be confused by that. You need to be comforted by his character. As you look at a God who has blessed us, who has chosen us, that it's about what he has done from the beginning of time. And he chooses us for a purpose. Verse 5, look at that verse. He tells us he chose us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, that he adopts you. He chooses you to adopt you. And the great thing about that is he doesn't choose you to be slaves for eternity. He doesn't grab you and put you over on the sidelines and say, don't screw this up. And what does he do? He adopts you. He pulls you close. He grabs you and he pulls you close. And I think we can all relate to this in some way. Adoption, foster care is is at the forefront of a crisis in Arizona, to be honest with you. Uh, We've had friends who have adopted, who are adopting, people in our church who are doing that. We have friends who in our church who are fostering. My wife works at an adoption agency. And so this is a very familiar and fresh analogy that Paul gives us. And the reality is, as you, as you think about that, there's a time in that story of adoption where a new mom and dad will have to go to the adopted child and explain to them, you know, at some point you, you had another mommy and daddy. That at some point that different situations, different circumstances, that maybe they couldn't take care of you, maybe they didn't want to take care of you, but that we came and we got you, and that you're part of this family now. That at some point you have that conversation where you begin to explain to them, this wasn't a simple transaction. 
right? We didn't do this because we felt bad or we got to write it off on our taxes, that you are ours, that we're now your, your mom and dad. And that, in fact, we took a lot of time and sacrifice and a lot of effort to come and get you, that we gathered a community together to come pray for you, that we navigated court documents and paperwork and, and waiting to come and pursue you. That in some cases, we crossed oceans to come rescue you. And that now you are mine. You are loved and accepted forever. And there is nothing you can do that will ever change that. That you're adopted. What Paul is describing looks like that. That he has adopted you in Christ that you're his forever, you're part of his family. And some of you say, well, Tim, I don't always feel like that. I don't always feel like I'm part of the family. Maybe even right now you feel distant to God. And you need to know it takes time, right? If, if you are an adoptive parent, if you have adopted a kid, you know it takes time, right? They have to grow into calling you mommy and daddy. They have to grow into realizing, oh, this is my house, Everything here is, is mine. Like, I'm a part of this family. They have to grow into the fact that you're never going to leave them. You're never going to abandon them. That They have to grow into that over time. It's the same way with God. That we are uncomfortable with his grace. That we're uncomfortable at times that God's our father. We can approach him. That it's a throne of grace. And it takes time for us to realize that and approach him in that manner. And God begins to illuminate his grace to you so that you can begin to see him as this generous father. But it takes time to grow into that family and God's gracious with us in that way. The next way we're blessed is that we're redeemed and forgiven. Ephesians 1, seven through eight, look at those verses. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. And so you are blessed because you are adopted. You are blessed because you are redeemed. That if you look at adoption, that adoption is bringing into a family. Redemption is bringing out of sin. That it's buying you out of sin. It's freeing you up from it and releasing you to new life. And it says, look at the text, it says redeemed by blood. And we think about that, and maybe that seems kind of harsh, especially if you're new to church. Like, we're redeemed by blood? Why is that? One of my kids recently just asked me, she said, Daddy, why in the Garden of Eden did Adam and Eve have to be kicked out after they sinned against God? That's a real question from my child. And, and I thought about it, and really what she was asking is, why is God so harsh? She said, Daddy, I think if he would have just told them sternly, they would have never eaten of that tree again. And I had to try to explain to her, and it honestly began me thinking about it, that you really have to understand that penalty is according to position. Here's what I mean by that. Penalty is according to position. That if you vandalize my house, don't do that. But if you vandalized my house, there's a different penalty associated with that than if you vandalize the White House, right? You tracking with me? 
There's different penalties associated with different positions. And that as we look at God, that God is infinitely perfect. And when you sin against him, when you do dismiss him, the maker of heavens and earth, God made everything. He's sustaining everything. Everything is his house. And when we dismiss him, we ignore him, we rebel against him, we are vandalizing his house. We are staining it. He's infinitely perfect. And therefore, our punishment is infinite as well. And it required blood. But God, in his glorious grace, through the blood of Jesus, absorbs all that punishment, all that wrath on our behalf. He absorbs the penalty. He takes it from you. He redeems you with his blood. He enacts justice as he extends grace. Do you see that? God is just. God is glorious in his grace, but God is also just, and those two aren't a a dichotomy from one another. He enacts justice as he extends grace, and he also forgives us. That deep stain goes away because the blood of Jesus washes it clean. Listen, everything that you have done, everything that's been done to you has been forgiven if you have trusted in Jesus and his death on the cross. You've been forgiven. The debt has been paid in full. Listen, Jesus died once for all, Romans says. He's never going to do that again. Amen? It was done once for all. He's not going to come back and do it again because of what you did last week. He's not going to come back and do it again because of what was done to you last year. Or as a child, it was done once for all that you have been redeemed in Christ. You have been forgiven in Christ. Amen? That it's glorious grace. And Paul is opening our eyes to that grace. And he does so in a very emphatic way. I love this. Paul says, it's not just grace. Look at these three verses, six through eight. It's not just grace. It's glorious grace, verse six. Verse seven, it's the riches of his grace. Verse eight, his grace has been lavished upon us. That Paul is describing this wealth, this abundance, this excessive, this overflowing grace. About a week ago, uh, my wife and I are in a new house and family, are in a newer house, uh, last two months, new neighborhood, all that kind of stuff. And about a week ago, at 1 a.m., our doorbell is ringing. 1 a.m., new neighborhood, new house. Our doorbell is ringing, three kids in the house. And it was one of those times where you wake up, And I'm like, I think something else is happening. And my wife has to basically shake me. And she's like, somebody's ringing the doorbell. I'm like, oh, I thought that was something else in my dream. Uh, And so I wake up. I grab my mag light as a weapon and as a light. You know what I'm saying, guys? I grab my mag light, and I I go to the front door. uh, But I didn't, you know, kick down the door and tackle somebody. Sorry to disappoint. But I did peek out the window with my mag light. And there was this lady standing at our door and there was this truck with the lights on right in front of my house at 1 a.m. And I began to think like, this is an interesting way to rob somebody by ringing the doorbell. Um, So maybe it's okay. And so I went outside and I said, you know, can I help you? Um, And she said, yeah, you know, there's, and by this time I see it, there's water uh, running down the, the street. You see, we have irrigation at our house. 
somebody else comes and they, they turn a valve and they release this water. Maybe if you're new to Arizona, this seems weird to you. It is weird. Um, but it's the desert, and this is the way to keep grass uh, green is that you basically flood your yard, that you open up a valve and you flood it, and, and it keeps your grass green, and you don't have to use sprinklers all the time, right? But somebody who had come and opened our valve forgot to close it, and so it was literally flooding everything. It was flooding our driveway. It was going down the street, and this was somebody from down the street just letting me know at 1 a.m., thank you, that this water is flooding down the street, and it can't wait till 7 a.m. And so I said, well, well, thank you very much. Nice to meet you. Come to Phoenix Bible Church. <laughs> Here's a track. And, um, and then I, I went back, and I, I closed the valve. You need to know, as you look at God's glorious grace that's been lavished upon you, that God and his mercy has released the valve of grace. And listen, he's never going to close it. It's never going to be closed. That it is going to overflow excessively in your life and in the lives of others. And nobody's going to come to your door at 1 a.m. and turn it off. Like he has lavished it upon you. It is glorious. It's rich. It's abundant. And it's so abundant, it's not just for you. It's collective. You see this in verses 9 through 10. Look at those verses. He says, his will, his purpose. Verse 10, his plan. That God is bringing about a purpose with his grace. And it is to save you. It is to adopt you. It is to redeem and forgive you. But it's bigger than that. It's more glorious than that. It's more overflowing than that. That it is collective. That it unites. Verse 10, it's a plan for the fullness of time to unite. To unite what? Our country, different races, different political parties? No, to unite all things, things in heaven, things on earth. It's interesting, as you look at that word unite, it derives from a word meaning the main point, the sum or summary of all things. And so as Paul is laying this out there, he's explaining to you that Jesus is the sum of everything. He's not just the means by which he unites, unites all things. He's the end goal. Because as we're united to him, everything is made right. That one day, eventually, when everything is united to Jesus Christ, that we'll experience peace. We'll experience joy. That all things will be united and made right. And listen, you need to know we're in a political season. That whatever candidate you choose to vote for, they can't do that right? They're not going to unite us, not completely, that Jesus is the only one who's going to do that, that he has blessed us because of his glorious grace, and he has united us. He's united us in a special way. Look at verse 11. It says, we have obtained an inheritance. You think about this, who gets an inheritance? Kids of rich people, Right? I, I don't know if my kids are going to get an inheritance. Maybe they'll get the 2,000 Volvo. I don't know. But who gets an inheritance? It's kids of wealthy, wealthy people. As we look at God's grace, it's so glorious. It's so rich. It's so abundant. You are blessed according to that with an inheritance forever. 
in eternity. That God has blessed you. He's united you with an inheritance. And some of you, as you think about this, you're like, these are a lot, these are a lot of blessings, but I don't know if they're for me. I mean, Tim, if you knew what I've done, if you saw me this week, if you knew my past, I don't know if I'm a part of this. You don't have to wonder that. Uh, Paul tells us how you can know, how you can know forever. He does that in verse 13. Look at that verse. He says, in him, that's Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. How do you know? You know because you've been sealed. Not by your works. Not by your attitude. Not by your past, present, or future. But you've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So you don't have to question. You can look at this passage and you can ask yourself in this moment, as I look at all that Jesus has done, as Paul lays out this summation of the Christian faith, as I look at that, have I heard and have I believed? Have you done that? If you've done that, you are in Christ and you are sealed. It never changes. It's guaranteed for forever. There's three times in this passage when talking about these blessings we receive where it ends with, to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. Three times in this passage. Why does God bless you? It, it helps you, but it honors him. God blesses you because it, it helps you, but it honors him, that it's ultimately bringing him glory and it's interesting, Isaiah 42 says this, that God will not yield his glory. So your guarantee in Christ is his glory. And that your salvation won't be yielded because his glory won't be yielded. Because it's to the praise of his glory. And so when you doubt, and we all do, I have doubted. When you do that, you don't further examine yourself. You fix your eyes on Jesus. You do need to look at yourself. You do need to think about the way I'm living. Am I responding accordingly to God's glorious grace? But then you fix your eyes on Jesus. Hebrews 12, that he authored your faith and he'll perfect it. Philippians 1, that he who began this work in you, he'll finish it. That in Christ, we are sealed as we think about this summation, these blessings, we have a list for you we can throw up on the screen. Just so you can see this, if you are in Christ, if you've heard and believed, this is who you are. You are blessed, you are adopted, you are redeemed, you are forgiven, you are united, you are sealed. Are you in Christ? Have you heard and believed? If not, you can do that now. That's not a trite thing to say. That's not just like me saying something that's gonna make you feel good. Paul says it in this verse, if you hear and believe, you can hear, you can believe now. You can stop listening to me. You can start talking to Jesus and believe in him and you can experience these blessings, all of them. 
If you are in Christ, you need to take a good look at that screen, that this is who you are. And we need to live like that. And you say, well, how do we live like that? What parts of my life need to change? Well, I just want to look at three as we close our time together. How do we live this out, that we're in Christ, that we've experienced these blessings? The first thing is there's perseverance in difficulty. Romans 8 says, present sufferings in this life are not worthy to be compared to the glory revealed in us. That some of you are experiencing difficulty financially, relationally, emotionally. Some of you are just waiting. You're waiting on a job. You're waiting on a relationship. You're waiting on a diagnosis. And you're suffering. And you're in the midst of difficulty. But as we think about all the ways we've been blessed in Christ, how we're chosen, how God has adopted us, how there's a purpose, there's a will to unite all things to himself, that that means God is using all of those trials, all of that waiting for an eternal purpose to make you what? Holy and blameless. That he's got a plan to unite you to himself, to unite all things to himself. And so listen, this is what that means, that nothing in your life is wasted. Nothing is pointless. That your struggles in your career Those things aren't pointless. That your pain, because of your health, that has a purpose, a divine, ultimate, eternal purpose in Christ. And so you can persevere because you see that in view. You don't just look at the pain. You look at the progress that you're not achieving. God is bringing that about, independent of you, and that you step into that When you're in Christ, you have perseverance in difficulty. The second thing is you have power over sin. Some of you have experienced a cycle of sin. Some of you are in that right now. And maybe you look at that lust. Maybe you look at that anger. Maybe you look at that gossip. Maybe you look at that envy. Maybe you look at that self-righteousness. And you think, I can never beat this, right? I mean, it just keeps coming back. And maybe Satan and your flesh start whispering in your ear and they say, just give in. This is who you are. This is what's going to bring you pleasure. Have you felt that before? Have have you looked at a sin in your life and you've thought, I mean, I want to run away from it. I don't want to do that. I don't want to commit that act. I know where it leads, but the next day you do it again. Have you been there? And have you thought about why not, right? It doesn't matter. I mean, this is, this is just the way I'm wired. This is just the struggle that everybody has. You need to know that is Satan and your flesh telling you, redefining who you are according to his evil intention and will. And that God in Christ is pulling you out of that. He's redeeming you out of that. And he's saying, don't listen to that. In the name of Jesus, don't listen to that. By the power of the Holy Spirit, don't listen to that, that this is who you are. Throw that back up there. That you are blessed, you are adopted, you are redeemed, you are forgiven, you are united, you are sealed. That when Satan and when your flesh comes to tempt you, that you don't look at that, you don't listen to that, that you look at this, that you ingrain this upon your thoughts. That you tattoo this on your body if you want to. 
You write it on a note card. You put it in your dash. You put it on your mirror. You know why you need to do that? Because everywhere you go, your flesh and Satan are telling you otherwise. And so everywhere you go, you need to be aware of that, acknowledge that, and combat that by the power of the Holy Spirit in Christ with what he has done for you. That this is who you are. And when you see it that way, you know you have ultimate victory. Today is a great day because the NFL season (laughs) is starting, right? Amen. And some of you right now, you're looking at your clock, you're thinking, well, AZ time, game started at 10. And maybe you have the DVR going, and maybe you're going to go home and watch something, but maybe before you watch it, you hear about who won because some jerk comes along and tells you that, right? And you hear who won, but you're a diehard fan. You're going to watch it anyway, right? You're going to watch it anyway. You know the final score, but you're going to watch it anyway. And when you do that, when you see your team fumble, you don't gasp like you would normally, right? When you see somebody throw a pick, you don't turn over in your chair. You're just like, we got this. Oh, that's, that, that stinks, but we, we got this. We're going to win in the end. Listen, when you know you're in Christ, you're going to win in the end. You know the final score is Jesus, like 100 million to Satan is zero. You know that's coming. And so in today, in light of that, today, you have power over your sin. That you don't have to give in. You don't have to fulfill that temptation. That you can fix your eyes on Jesus and you can have the confidence, the victory to defeat sin. You have that today in Christ. The last thing is that we have a praise that's overflowing. Maybe you weren't excited at the beginning. I hope you're excited now. As you've seen, as you've looked at who we are in Christ, that you would have the same kind of explosion of praise that Paul had. And you wouldn't just have it today when we sing in a few moments. I hope you have it then. I hope as Bradley says, hey, sing this out. He's echoing scripture, by the way. He's saying sing this out because that's what we're commanded to do in scripture, to sing his praises. I hope you do that in a few moments. But you don't just do it on Sunday. You do it on Monday. You do it in your proclamation, in your conversations, that you overflow with praise. You know, in a lot of conversations that I'm in, as I talk to people about the church or God or the Bible, they talk about it sometimes as a bunch of stuff I have to do. Like maybe you've invited a friend to church or you have that brother, you have that family member, you have that friend who you're like, man, I'm always trying to get him to church and he's always like, I gotta get myself right first, right? Everybody has that friend who's like, no, I gotta clean up my act, I gotta join that holy huddle. And listen, that's one of the most frustrating things for me as a pastor who's read the Bible. It's one of the most frustrating things because I think that's not true. But it's also one of my most favorite things simultaneously because I get to set the record straight, that I get to jump into that conversation and I get to say, no, 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 you don't understand. You don't understand. It's glorious grace. It's been lavished upon us that you are blessed in Christ, that you have the opportunity to be blessed in Christ by God, that you have the opportunity to be adopted by God, that you have the opportunity to be redeemed and forgiven and united and sealed by God, 
You see, you don't understand. It's not those things. It's all about what God has done for you in Christ. And then I invite them to church. You got to come here. Then I say, hey, read the Bible. Read the Gospel of John. Read Ephesians. You got to read your Bible. You got to come see this. And listen, you need to have that same sense of urgency. That as we praise on Sunday, we'd also praise on Monday with our coworkers and our family members who we're not sure about. We're not sure, like, are they in Christ? I don't know. I see some things. They say some things. I don't really know. You need to be overwhelmed with proclamation and praise. You need to say, no, 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 and set the record straight. Invite them to church. Read scripture with them. Open their eyes to God's glorious grace that they might hear and believe. As we look at this summation of the Christian faith, as we get started in this book of Ephesians, Paul, the apostle, is like a kid at Christmas. He's exploding in praise. That we would respond today, that we would live this out if you are in Christ, that we would persevere in difficulty, that we'd have power over our sin, and that we would be overcome and overflow with praise. That's your response this morning. As we continue in this book, you know, there's only one command in the first three chapters, and it's this. In chapter two, it's remember. Isn't that great? First three chapters, no commands, only one, remember. Not remember what you have done. Not remember what you have failed to do. Remember what God has done for you in Christ. This morning, I encourage you, I challenge you to take a moment to remember. Let's do that as we pray. Father in heaven, I pray this morning for those that know you, God, that they would treasure you. I pray that those who don't know you, they would trust you, that they would hear and believe, that as we look at who we are in Christ, that that would become a reality in our life today. That as we sing these songs, as we respond in communion, as we live our lives throughout the week, that we would be able to persevere in the midst of difficulty in a different way. That sins in the lives of these men and women will begin to break because they're in Christ, they're adopted, they're blessed, they're sealed, they're united with you, they're redeemed, they're forgiven. That they could begin to run towards you and life in you and run away from death and destruction, that we could do that collectively as a body. God, may you open our eyes to your glorious grace. If some of us are sitting here thinking right now, I've heard this before, and it's not moving us, God, I pray supernaturally by the power of your spirit that you would move them now, that we would not look casually at your word, at what you have done for us, but we would be overwhelmed by it, and we would give you praise because of it, because you are glorious. God, I thank you for that. It's by your spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.